What's up? This is the You Are Not Listening to This Podcast. My name is Will James. And recently I was asked if I could talk a little bit about redemption. And I have to say, usually I'd have plenty of things to talk about on virtually any religious topic. But I was really struggling with this one. And I thought about it a lot. And I think I've realized that redemption is a bit of a triggering concept for me. Now, if someone hadn't asked, I don't think I'd ever have noticed it. But I I found myself at such a loss. All I could think to do was just look up the definition of the word and start there. And so we'll just talk about the first two definitions of the word redemption. But before we even do that, that's a fun idea, right? Like all our words in English in 2022, they all have these multiple meanings that each of them have evolved and expanded, let alone the idea of even trying to apply those words to other languages and cultures from thousands of years ago with their own multiple meanings. But at the same time, there's just a bunch of mouth sounds we make. We ascribe ever so slightly different meanings to, and then fight over them consistently. (laughs) Anyway, the first definition of redemption is the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. The second definition is the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. Now, I find those definitions fascinating. With the first one, it's obviously fully enmeshed with religious ideas and concepts. But again, with all language... Each of these words have different meanings for each of us. Sin, error, evil. Now, obviously, we can and we often do disagree on what those mean, what those are. But beyond that, what context are we even considering? Are we looking at them through an individual lens, a corporate lens? Are we talking about the past? Are we talking about the future? Are we limiting which religions have a voice? Which denominations have a voice? And if you believe in these things, sin, error, evil, then I would imagine that you believe they very much still exist. So if being saved from them is the definition of redemption, what is that in the tangible now? Is it something to long for and hope for someday in the future? Is it the ongoing process that we individually restart every day, taking into account each of our thoughts and decisions from the day before? Is the arc of our life showing we are living worthy of redemption? With the second definition, it's not strictly religious. It's actually a lot closer to the archaic meaning of the word. 
the action of buying another's freedom. But regaining possession in exchange for a payment is an interesting religious concept. Because, of course, you can redeem a ticket to a roller coaster ride. You can redeem a ticket at the bar at your networking event. But when you view it through the religious lens, what redeemed your ticket, right? We look at the cross or the sanctuary tradition. We might think of the wages of sin, the price of our filthy rags that we're hoping to substitute for Christ's spotless ones. So in that sense, we can focus on who made the payment, who cleared my debt. We can be thankful to know we were purchased despite our imperfections and proclivities. If you can get past that terminology from your perspective, I'll just throw it out there. I don't love the idea of being purchased for lordship and servitude (laughs) as an (laughs) African-American, but whatever. It's not what we're talking about. What I'm trying to get at is after we focus on these concepts that are repeated to us in church, we're left with the nagging question of who set the price And why is it so high? And I think working through the definitions and that's where it hit me. Like a core memory was unlocked. This concept, redemption is a difficult thing for me to wrap my thoughts around because of that question. Who set the price and why? That was a major fault line in my religious existence. So to talk about redemption, to explain that, this is the point where I have to, and it's simply because it is my religious experience, make this a little bit about Adventist doctrine. I'm not suggesting anybody else's idea of redemption resembles this. Um, I'm also not speaking for all Adventists. I'm sure many would be quick to deny the characterizations I'm about to paint for you, and that's fine. But typically, in my opinion, when we, anybody, not just Adventists, when anybody thinks of redemption, we get a little tied up in what we get out of it, right? The clearing of that debt. But that effectively is not burning in hell. That's (laughs) That tends to be the focus for a lot of us. That's not to sell short your various conceptions of what everlasting life is like or a new earth, heaven, being reunited with, you know, all of that. I understand. But I also can't blame people for fixating on the uh, simplistic idea, I suppose, of, hey, by default, you're destined to be set on fire by a supernatural being. But, but, a thing happened. And as long as you believe in that thing, and as long as you follow this set of denominationally specific rules, you can avoid that fire. And 
live without the bad people forever. You know, just sign me up, right? <laughs> but in Adventism, a remnant of humanity avoiding a easily top three worst possible extinction level events of billions of people, many of them we would know and love and presumably miss, even though we will live happily ever after. That idea is not the central point of the redemption story. Our salvation is basically a felice culpa, a happy accident. The central point of the redemption story in Adventism's view is not to deliver humanity from anything, but to vindicate God's character. Part of what Adventism calls the spirit of prophecy, these books written by Ellen White that was believed to be inspired uh, to the same extent by the same spirit that inspired all biblical prophets of the canonized scriptures. There's a book called Patriarchs and Prophets. On page 68, I just I want to make sure I anchor what I'm telling you in something from the theology. On page 68, Ellen said, the plan of redemption had a yet broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. It was not for this alone that Christ came to earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded, but it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. Now there's a lot packed in there, that shouldn't be missed. This stems from the unique view of universal history, past and future, that Adventism calls the great controversy. That's another one of Ellen's inspired concepts. What this is built on is the idea that um, instead of the Bible's origin stories describing God creating everything, instead of the Bible being a story about a specific family within humanity living on God's ultimate creation. In the great controversy framework, the Bible describes God's creation of his last thing. But prior to the events of Genesis 1, God had already created at least somewhere for himself to reside, a host of angels, and again, according to Adventism, most likely any number of other solar systems with Earth-like planets and atom-like intelligent creatures. These other beings have never left their Garden of Eden stages. They still live in perfect harmony. They have access to and from wherever God's central location is. And all of that is believed to be evidenced by the divine council meetings in Job chapters one and two. And most important for the story and story, at least I'm telling you due to some colorful metaphorical language in Job 38, all of these beings are also able to observe this final creation and witness our epic downfall. Now, two quick things. 
First, I suspect many people, Adventists included, didn't know about this alien thing. So here's a receipt. I've been around since there were just 27 fundamental beliefs. There's 28 now. But there was a book put out by the church in 1988. I have a copy of it. It's an exposition of the fundamental beliefs. General Conference published it. In the commentary on belief number six, which is the belief on creation, there is direct references to these divine council meanings in Job 1 and 2. And that book says that, this is a quote, the Bible pictures the sons of God, probably the atoms of all the unfallen worlds, meeting with God in some distant corner of the universe. Space probes so far have discovered no other inhabited planets. They apparently are situated in the vastness of space, well beyond the reach of our sin-polluted solar system, quarantined against the infection of sin. So not only are aliens presumed in the fundamental beliefs of Adventism, they have been completely protected from sin. That's one. Two, I just, for self-edification, I personally believe, and I'm not, I'm not presenting a belief I've come up with on my own. I think this is scholarly consensus. The book of Job is strictly wisdom literature and in no way an historical account of anything. I, that's not a controversial take, right? <laughs> and I, do, I don't even think the authors of Job intended people to think it was a historical account. It's, um, it's clearly meant to open up debate about various characteristics of God. In my opinion, it is a thing to focus on and have discussions about. Sure. To draw things from sure, but basing fundamental concepts of your denomination, fundamental concepts of what reality is, on the framework that the story of Job is just a microcosm of all humanity is problematic. And, well, the great controversy explains why that's problematic. Because one of those prior intelligent creations, the accuser in Job 1 and 2, is presumed to be the archangel Lucifer. Now, you already know Lucifer's deal, but for Ellen in Adventism, Lucifer's creation of sin, his pride, was that he believed he could be like God or above God in the sense that he believed he knew better how to run his own life, that because God was making perfect creations, they didn't need rules. That's the deception that the great controversy claims Lucifer made to the angels. Um, I forget the page that's on, but there is a quote there where it since their natures were holy, he urged that the angels should obey the dictates of their own will. So his challenge to God was that having loss, God assuming command, God having authority that was mandated, I guess, 
was unfair, unnecessary, and unjust. This is the beginning of evil. Now, God could have immediately killed Lucifer for second guessing him, for challenging his authority, for transgressing the law. As the wages of sin is death. We have been told that it could have happened to him, but God feared that destroying Lucifer would make the other angels and the other Adams obey him out of fear. And God didn't want that. They needed to understand what evil was before he could fully eradicate it or it might spring up again. They needed to understand that not abiding by the law of God would carry these terrible consequences and that he wasn't making rules just for rules sake. On page 498 of the great controversy, Ellen says this for the good of the entire universe through ceaseless ages, Satan must more fully develop his principles so she's saying there for everything else that God had created and everything that God would create. Satan needed to be allowed to run his play. So to address the accusation Lucifer had made, God decided to create one last thing. One more solar system, one more planet where he placed one final atom and where he'd go on to confine Lucifer and the angels that Lucifer had deceived here. And so here, Lucifer's plan would be allowed to play out just like the bet that God and Satan made in the book of Job, except all of us, every one of us that's ever lived is Job living out the horrific side effects of the sin experiment for the observational benefit of all those other creations. Page 499 of the Great Controversy. Thus, the history of this terrible experiment of rebellion was to be a perpetual safeguard to all holy intelligences to prevent them, to prevent them from being deceived as to the nature of transgression, to save them from committing sin and suffering its punishments. Page 504, the whole universe, again, not us, will have become witnesses to the nature and results of sin and its utter extermination, meaning the hellfire being unleashed on earth and unforgiven sinners, which in the beginning would have brought fear to the angels and dishonor to God, will now vindicate his love and establish his honor before the universe of beings who delight to do his will and whose heart is in his law. So after reviving from death, billions of us, just to burn us alive at some point in the future, Instead of destroying one single angel in the past, God's love and honor will be vindicated. 
So the thing for me was, after I wept at the feet of the cross, after repenting of a terrible life I'm leading, after claiming hope in the sacrifice of Jesus, that's what redemption was. A lab rat that reaches the cheese in time. A data point. Something to be observed for the intellectual benefit of someone else. But very little care is needed for the lab rat. No one cares which one gets the cheese, which ones stay trapped. The point was to prove whether or not the hypothesis was correct. As long as one of them gets the cheese, the experiment is a success. And lo and behold, the scientist himself, dressed up like a rat, finished the maze by a young adulthood. And boom, it is finished. The law was kept. The law was fair. And an escape hatch was left. But the number of other rats that find it is irrelevant. The hypothesis has been validated. The point has been proven. Story of redemption. So as you can imagine, that cynical outlook <laughs> on theology um it comes after running out of a lot of internal arguments for why it doesn't matter that redemption wasn't really about deliverance, which I think the biblical authors intended the concept to be. And how every moment of earth has just been a giant. I told you so between two supernatural rivals. So you sort of, you know, find yourself in a bit of an existential crisis. Like I said, the fault lines. The big one. It's difficult for the subjects of an experiment to see that it's fair when their portion of it is so clearly arbitrary. That's why we use rats instead of experimenting on each other as much as possible. But as I'm one to do, as I feel guilty for talking about Adventism, I figured I'm sure somebody else in the evangelical sphere said some crazy stuff too. So <laughs> I looked up what John Piper had to say about this idea of why the devil gets to exist. And honestly, his idea wasn't a whole lot different than the concept of the great controversy. Now, he didn't have aliens in his theory. But when he was asked the question of why doesn't God just kill the devil, he broke it into two parts. First, can God kill the devil? And then, if so, why hasn't he? What good is there in letting him survive? So he made the point to say unequivocally that, of course, God can kill the devil because the Bible tells us that God will eventually, again, hellfire. 
However, since we know he can, there must be some very good reason why he doesn't do it or why he didn't do it a long time ago. And the reason I'm even bringing this up is because Piper's conclusion, even if you were to try and maneuver through life without a tempter, we're already flawed. So we'd still have bad ideas. We'd still have bad behavior. We don't need something external pushing us towards sin. We are fully capable of it already. Like the concept wasn't, hey, if we get rid of the devil, there's no more temptation, there's no more sin. He's saying, no, there would still be sin. So there would still be need for salvation, need for repentance, all of that. But when we choose to do the right thing in the face of temptation, Piper said more of God's glory shines in the battle. It's more triumphant of a moment for God to have his people pick him over something else than just pick him. It's not simply a test of loyalty. It's an opportunity for glory to shine on God. So the evil we deal with on a grand scale, disease, genocide, war, the stuff we deal with more locally, domestic violence, drug addiction, whatever it is, I don't know. All of these things we look at as negative, caused by poor decisions or whatever. It all exists so that when we resist these urges or we survive these terrors or we come back from the grips of something, God looks like a bigger hero than if we just lived our lives without the temptations at all. It's a bigger pat on his back. What I learned from that is maybe it doesn't really matter which Americanized Christian denomination you come from. When people seek to answer these questions of evil, when people think they have an answer to that, they tend to come to conclusions that show God has a bit of an ego problem. And all of humanity is on the short end of that stick. It never comes out in how they say it. But there's either no depth that God is uncomfortable allowing his own favorite angel to steep to just to be proven right. Or he requires so much praise and adoration that he continually allows terrible things to happen to the people he loves because he likes to see them pick him in their struggle. He needs that constant affirmation. You know, maybe we always remind ourselves how much God loves us in our songs because it can be so hard to feel from our dogma. But if I have a current position on redemption, I can't tie it to my Adventist foundation. I can't tie it to whatever Piper's doing. I don't know that it fits neatly into the ideas of Christianity at all outside the language that I use to describe it. 
But I have this book. I reread it from time to time. It's called The Evolution of Adam. It's by Pete Enns, one of my absolute all-time favorite authors. And it's not a book about redemption, necessarily, but there are a couple of pages in there that recalibrated the idea for me. Pete draws these comparisons between Israel's ideas about God from their writings to the theologies of the people, groups, and cultures that were around them. Part of the reason for that is he's a scholar, and to truly analyze biblical context, you have to focus at times a little less on what the words are that are actually said by themselves and more on why they were said and how that compares to the others around them. What makes these ideas different and significant enough that they were kept and canonized? And one distinction that Pete drew was that with Israel, their writers saw the same God that had created order out of chaos in their origin stories, of which there were many contemporary and pre-existing versions of with a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities. But the God in the Israelite stories that did that was the same entity that was continually active in their redemption. Not monotheism per se, but that for them there was one source, not many. And redemption wasn't about everlasting life. It wasn't about afterlife insurance. It was deliverance from whatever was right in front of them, be that the anger of a twin brother you'd wronged, captivity and servitude in a foreign land, exile from your own home. When they put their past experiences in writing, the thing that had delivered them, the thing that kept delivering them was the same thing that had formed all of reality. Everything was interconnected. They were all interconnected. Paul, being a good Jewish man, took this concept of interconnected deliverance, this aspect of the Jewish God he grew up with, and he applied it to all people, not just the family. And from sin in general, and specific, I guess. And it's still arguable that he was speaking of it in a past tense. There is now no condemnation. Now, our individual churches and dogmas and denominations did what they did from there. We've moved redemption around. Redemption occurred at the cross or it was in Bethlehem. It occurs at your baptism or when you first catch the spirit or speak in tongues or begin to keep the Sabbath or become truly repentant, whatever it is. But there was something in this concept that what Pete was talking about Israel adding to the conversation that really stuck with me. And he said, creation and redemption are not two separate acts. The latter is an instantiation of the former. Now I had to look that word up. I'm not going to lie to you, but it's a, a tangible expression effectively. And so to ancient Israel, the ongoing process of progression, growth within this space of creation, their journey itself was redemption. Redemption was a continual creative process. The reason that lands for me is because it allows me to frame 
our sheer existence as redemptive instead of an investigation, instead of an experiment. Our being conscious at this specific time and place, being fragments of this interconnected universe observing itself, we have the freedom, the access to observe what is not good, what is not perfect and call that out. We can save it from error. We can recognize a debt that is owed. We can take texts we call holy and unchanging that advocated for slavery and genocide and bigotry of all kinds and then use those same texts to condemn all of those same things. Unironically. We can know what brought us from there to here is greater than any of us individually, corporately, culturally. We can change and adapt things quickly in mass, or we can do it incrementally in the individual legacies that we leave behind. But in that sense, I could view redemption not as something I'm in pursuit of, hopelessly in pursuit of most of the time, but something to accept my role in. Not something to reach back to, but something to help push forward. Not something happening to us for someone else's benefit. Something we're an integral part of. Not something to hope for in the future, but something to actively engage with in real time, all the time. The continuation, the instantiation. (laughs) I'm going to use it now. And while that's not what redemption was before, it's what I have left. So as always, I love you, even though I don't know you. This is the You Are Not Listening to This Podcast. Thanks for not listening.